John chapter 1. Today we're not going to venture away from our normal series to get into a Father's Day message. God's planning has us uh, in a passage that speaks about the Father on Father's Day, and so uh, we'll get a little bit of both. We will stay in the text in the series with John chapter 1, and we will mention uh, the fatherhood of God. We've been now in John chapter 1, this intro, this prologue for five weeks. Today is our fifth and final sermon uh, in this series. It's been outstanding. This is an introductory uh, statement from the Apostle John so that we would have great clarity on the truth of God in Christ. We cannot miss that. Humanity cannot miss that. And John has written for us a long gospel, okay? It's very long. It's a good book, 21 chapters. But he has this prologue, as we've been calling it here at the beginning, these 18 verses. It is very well written. He uses the simplest of vocabularies to explain the most profound of truths. And so all of us can get it. The first week we talked about the Word four Sundays ago, the Word. The second week we talked about the light. The light shines in the darkness. God's truth and God's Son, Jesus, exposes sin and darkness, and he brings us to the light through forgiveness. So we had the Word and then the light, and then week three we had the witness. God has a man that he sent right ahead of Jesus named John the Baptist who would go before and his whole life and everything about him would be pointing people to look to Christ. In that example of John the Baptist who is the ultimate witness, uh, we have for us the example that we too are to be witnesses. We are to be in everything we do pointing people to Jesus. And then last week we looked at uh, the children of God. The Bible says in this prologue that you must receive Christ in order to get God. You must receive him in order to become a child of God. And it lets us know that there are many who do not receive him. And then today, to finish up this, we're going to look at verses 14 through 18. We're going to see the message of the word. So the word is how this began at verse 1, but, uh, and we, we only hear of the word in verse 1. And then again at verse 14, where we will start today, the word is brought back up, okay? And so it's the message of the word. Now, God gave us his whole book to be a message to us. Each biblical author wrote their book to be a message to us. The, the gospel and the truths in and of themselves are a message to us. But really, the prologue, verses 1 through 18, are a message to us. They are the message of the word. And so... With the message of the word, we want to make sure we have understood God's message. When we get at understanding what is God's message, we got to make sure that we are not trying to understand God through our senses, through our intelligence, through our knowledge and understanding, but rather understand God as God has revealed himself. This is absolutely critical. And so becomes the responsibility of every one of us so that anybody who would know God from us would know God rightly or accurately. And it's not as we would present him, it is as God has presented himself. And so a faithful witness 
witnesses to God as God is. A faithful witness witnesses to Christ in the gospel as it is, as it's true. And there's a very danger there that we try to understand God or interpret God on our own terms. This is really serious when we think about Father's Day, right? And we know that there are many, many good fathers and mothers around, and we praise God for them but we would be kidding ourselves if we weren't aware that also, you know, in our midst and in our world is a lot of heartache on Father's Day, a lot of heartache on Mother's Day. People who do not have fathers, people who have lost their fathers, people who right now don't talk to their father, can't stand their father, been hurt by their father. We could go on and on with that. And so what I'm saying here is that if God is described as father, which he is, and we think of what it means to be a father through our experience, then we are already not understanding God rightly, right? We don't like the idea of a father. We don't like the idea of what fathers are like. And so there's a danger there. And it's important for us to understand God as God reveals himself. That is so important. You don't understand God, as, uh, you don't understand God through your life. You understand your life through God. And that's a huge distinction. I want to tell you a story that kind of gets to this. I was just learning about this. The sixth president of the United States of America, President John Quincy Adams, was in office from 1825 to 1829. He was a writer. He loved to write. He wrote in his journal. He loved to write personal stories. He loved to tell them, right? And one day he took the day off so that he could go fishing with his youngest son. Perhaps you've heard this before. He took the day off so he could go fishing with his youngest son. Upon that day concluding, he comes home and gets back to writing, and he wrote, went fishing with my son, a day wasted. A few years later, the son's journal was discovered. They quickly looked at the date to match it up, and on the same day that President John Quincy Adams wrote, day wasted, his son had written, Best day ever. How you understand fatherhood may or may not be a good picture of fatherhood or the father. How you understand love from a father, I would dare say, is all over the place here this morning, is it not? Love from a father. Not just the father, but loving, a lo love from a father. And yet we must be very careful to not misunderstand or misinterpret our Father in heaven through our experience. Our passage here today will teach us what God's message is and really what the message is from the Father as we have now seen the Son. Read with me, if you will, at John chapter 1, verses 14 through 18. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. 
the only God, who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. Folks, this is one of the best passages in the entire Bible. This is loaded with truth. It's not really fair that we've only got 30, 40, 50 minutes here for this sermon to try to explain these verses because they are that rich, right? We don't want to get lost in it and get bored and and take too much time with it, but we so want to get what these are all about. I have three points for you today that I really hope that you will grasp. Number one, the incarnation of the Word. A big word there, incarnation. The incarnation of the Word. Number two, the insubordination of the people. Insubordination. Y'all probably know what that means. You're good at it. The insubordination of the people, all right? And then number three, the invitation to the Father. The invitation to the Father. Incarnation, insubordination, and invitation. Look back with me, if you will, at verse 14. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. That little phrase, that half of a verse, that piece of Scripture is loaded, and we don't have enough time to get into all of it. If you like to read and you like to study, come talk to me afterward, and I can give you books upon books upon books of people wrestling with what does it mean that the Word became flesh. In our first sermon in this series, we studied verse 1, if you look at verse 1, and it says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Verse 2, he was in the beginning with God. The Word is the creator. The Word is a person. The Word is God, and the Word is God's Son. The Word is Jesus Christ. And we have no other mention of the Word until we get back here to verse 14, and we hear that this creator, God Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us. What a statement. What we are talking about here is the incarnation of the word. The word incarnation means embodied in flesh. It means given a bodily form. God Almighty became a man. Make no mistake about it. This is a huge point of belief, teaching, doctrine, and Christianity. You must not get this wrong. Jesus is both Fully God and fully man. 100% God and 100% man. Both natures, divinity and humanity, are completely in Jesus. D.A. Carson said, God chose to make himself known finally and ultimately in a real historical man when the word became flesh. God became a human. John is introducing this right? You may remember from Galatians chapter 4, verse 4, when it makes this great statement, it says, for when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a virgin, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law. God sent Jesus to become a man so that he could die for men. 
That's the incarnation. In our Baptist faith and message, which is the doctrinal statement of what we believe, what it means to be a Southern Baptist, we've been teaching on this on Sunday evenings, right? It says this. This is the opening sentence under God the Son. It says, Christ is the eternal Son of God. In his incarnation as Jesus Christ, he was conceived of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. Jesus is God. God became a man. And that's what we have here. We have John introducing this gospel, which is about to explain to us in beautiful form a long written book, again, 21 chapters, about this Jesus. If Jesus is the God man, then let's read about him. Let's hear the stories. Let's tell the tales, right? In chapter one, you've got him calling the disciples. In chapter two, right, you've got the wedding at Cana, the first miracle, water to wine, right? You've got the cleansing of the temple. In John chapter three, you've got Nicodemus. In John chapter four, you've got the lady at the well, right? And it goes on and on and on. It's such a good gospel that y'all know. You know so many stories in the Gospel of John. And John is absolutely gripped and captivated by this man, Jesus. Truly, he is the most interesting, the most fascinating, the most compelling human being in the world. It is God in the form of us. The incarnation of Jesus Christ. It is outstanding. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So I want to read to you some quotes. I've got a few here, but I I, I want you to hear this. The plain meaning of these words is that our divine Savior really took human nature upon him in order to save sinners. He really became a man like ourselves in all things, sin only accepted. Like ourselves, he was born of a woman, though born in a miraculous manner. Like ourselves, he grew from infancy to boyhood and from boyhood to man's estate, both in wisdom and in stature. Like ourselves, he hungered, thirsted, ate, drank, slept, was wearied, felt pain, wept, rejoiced, marveled, was moved to anger and compassion. Having become flesh and taken a body, he prayed, read the scriptures, suffered being tempted, and submitted his human will to the will of God the Father. And finally, in the same body, he really suffered and he shed his blood. He really died. He really was buried. He really rose again and he really ascended up into heaven. And yet all this time, he was God as well as man. That's who we're talking about. Do not get that wrong. Many people have said, That apart from the doctrine of the Trinity, right, the Godhead, the three in one, the one God existing in three persons, that more heresy and false belief and false teaching in the history of the world has come about because people do not understand Jesus. They've not read their Bibles. They've not sought it out. They have not not to understand and believe that the Bible says he is God and the Bible says he is man. They don't believe. And so we have a huge problem here. John wants us to understand this. So he says a few things. Verse 14 is long. Look at it. It says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son. So you see that he's not the first person of the Trinity. He's not the Father. The Word is not the Father. Everybody sees that. That's why verse 1 says he was with God and he was God. There's a distinction. But yet they are one and the same, but they are different. And he's making this point. Glory as of the only Son. Son, we have seen his glory. And this is an interesting statement. We have seen his glory. Because, as you know, if you read your Bible, seeing the glory of God is in a gigantic concept. K 
Can we see the glory of God? Well, I invite you to turn with me to Exodus chapter 33, the most familiar passage that we have in all of the Bible about the glory of God being seen by a person, the one that we will always remember once you have heard this story. This is the passage, right? where they are commanded to leave Mount Sinai. And Moses makes the great statement, if we're going to go somewhere, you're going with us. We will not go, God, without you, in which the church says amen. For apart from him, we can do nothing. God, don't send us anywhere that you're not going with us, right? And that's the passage here. And I want you to look with me at Exodus chapter 33, verse 17. Exodus 33, verse 17. And the Lord said to Moses, This very thing that you have spoken I will do, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Here's the, here it is, 33:18. Look at this statement. Moses said, Please show me your glory. You've heard that before. You've heard songs that sing that very thing. God, show us your glory, right? We long for it. We want to see it. We know there is a danger with seeing the glory of God when something shines so brightly that it does not need the sun. And you know how bright the sun shines? We're talking bright, right? We're talking bright. That is the glory of God. But Moses' prayer is a big one. It's a bold one. It's the heart of a man who knows God. It's the heart of a man who wants God. Moses prays, Lord, sh please show me your glory. Verse 19, and he said, I will make, I will make all my goodness pass before you. There's a connection there. There's a study for you to go with, right? What does it mean to see the glory of God and to know the glory of God? I think in short, it is to see all the goodness of God, as you're going to see here in a second. To see the glory of God is to see in perfect clarity, redemptive clarity, holy clarity, the goodness of God in every way that he is truly the only one who is good. Notice the question or the cry is, please show me your glory. But in verse 19, God says, I will make all my goodness pass before you. But it's not so simple. Keep reading. And will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. And I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face. For man shall not see me and live. This is the word of God. God tells Moses, who wants to see his glory, you cannot see my face. I'll show you my glory and my goodness, but you will not see my face. For if you see my face in your sinfulness, you will not live. Verse 21, and the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And, I and, and while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock. You know the old song, he hid me in the cleft of the rock, right? That's what it's talking about here where you shall stand on the rock, and while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. D.A. Carson says, in this case, in John chapter 1, we have seen his glory. It is almost certain that John is speaking to the readers about Exodus 33 and 34. There Moses begs God, show me your glory. The Lord replies, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. He goes on, God's glory then is supremely his goodness. 
So Moses stands on Mount Sinai. We are told the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord. And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love, abounding in faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Exodus 34, 5 through 7. And the Bible starts to speak back at John chapter 1, and you can turn back there now. And the Bible starts to speak about the glory of God or us having seen the glory of God. It wants us to think about how glorious God is. It wants us to see this as a huge deal, no small matter. This means this is the incarnation. This is not some simple thing where we saw something nice or we saw something pretty or we saw something beautiful or we saw something valuable. That's how we would think if we do not understand our sinfulness. But when you have sinned against God and you have the wrath of God on you and the Bible says we are condemned already, to say that we have seen his glory is no small matter. This is huge. What Moses could not see. God had to put his hand over him, had to stick him in a rock, had to pass by this way. You can only see the backside. Like that whole type of a thing is serious. And that's what John wants us to see in Christ is happening. In the incarnation, we have God showing himself to us. Read verse 14 again. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. In seeing God's glory, in seeing God's goodness, we have two descriptors there that we better grasp. Grace and truth. Full of grace and full of truth. It's masterful that God puts these two words together. Because in our culture today, in our lives, we often think that they are contrasted. To be true is to be right. You don't have to be kind. To be kind is to say it doesn't matter if you're right. I just need to be kind and gracious, right? Loving cannot be connected to truth or grace cannot be connected to truth. But in God and in his son and in Jesus, they are there. And if you ever want to see it, look to Christ. If you ever want to know what's right, look to Christ. If you ever want to know what grace is, look to Christ. He is full of grace and truth. It's absolutely a beautiful connector. Let's think about that. Truth being the message. Grace being how it came. Truth being what's said or what's told or what's being revealed. Grace being how it was delivered, right? How many times have we been in an argument? Or how many times have we read online or heard somebody, or read on social media, and somebody said, well, it's the truth. And it's so offensive, and it's so wrong in its delivery, that whether you're true or right, it still makes us go, well, if it is the truth, I don't want anything to do with it. If that's what the truth looks like, acts like, if that's how the truth carries itself, presents itself, listen to me, if that's how the truth treats people, then I'll be fine to have nothing to do with the truth. If loving you is wrong, then I don't want to be right, you've heard before. See, that's the way we often experience it in the world. Or unfortunately, that's the way we've often experienced it with ourselves. But that's not how God is. God is full of grace and truth. Christ came as real as can be with a message that could never be false. He is completely true, and yet he was full of of grace. He was. It's beautiful to think of him full of grace. Listen to this quote. 
while we state most carefully what we do believe in the incarnation, we must not shrink from declaring boldly what we do not believe. We must never forget that though our Lord was God and man at the same time, the divine and human natures in him were never confounded. One nature did not swallow up the other. The two natures remained perfect and distinct. The divinity of Christ was never for a moment laid aside, although veiled. The manhood of Christ during his lifetime was never for a moment unlike our own, though by union with the Godhead greatly dignified. Though perfect God, Christ has always been perfect man from the first, from, from the first moment of his incarnation. He that is gone into heaven and is sitting at the Father's right hand to intercede for sinners is man as well as God. Though perfect man, Christ never ceased to be perfect God. He that suffered for sin on the cross and was made sin for us was God manifest in the flesh. According to Acts chapter 20, the blood with which the church was purchased is called the blood of God. Though he became flesh in the fullest sense when he was born of the Virgin Mary, he never at any period ceased to be the eternal word. To say that he constantly manifested his divine nature during his earthly ministry would of course be contrary to plain facts. To attempt to explain why his Godhead was sometimes veiled and at other times unveiled while he was on earth would be venturing on ground which we had better leave alone. But to say that at any instant of his earthly ministry, he was not fully and entirely God is nothing less than heresy. Christ is God. And in the incarnation, we have him presented to us in grace and truth. We must not miss this, and we must not get this wrong. Now, it is true that here today, we all know people who aren't sure what they believe about Christ. We all know people who are part of churches or religions or cults or, unfortunately, denominations that are hardly faithful to the Scriptures. And so they may give lip service to the Lord Jesus Christ, but they do not believe him to be what the Bible says he is. And so here today, we must understand that the living word is God in the flesh. That's the incarnation. D.A. Carson would sum it up like this. In John's prologue, once the identity of the word is grasped, okay, that's why we spent so much time on these, five, on these five Sundays in these first 18 verses. Listen to this. Once the identity of the word is grasped, the incarnation is seen as a stupendous act of revelation, of divine self-disclosure. Like, this is amazing. This is so good. The word is God. The word is Christ. The word is Jesus. Stupendous does not mean stupid. It means amazing and wonderful and astounding and marvelous, okay? But if the identity of the word is not grasped, the incarnation itself is nonsense. And so here we are today, left with a good piece of teaching that says, what do you believe about Jesus? What do you believe about him? Why is it truly all about Christ? Why would we sing songs that say, all I have is Christ? Because what God was doing in Jesus was becoming man so that he could reconcile man to himself. To start thinking outside of Christ being the key, you must 
admit that you've lost access to forgiveness. You've lost access to a relationship with God. You've lost access to salvation. It is through what God the Father is doing with His Son that you and I get right with God. And the incarnation brings all of that about. So secondly, after the incarnation of the Word, we have the insubordination of the people. We see this here in this passage because John, in just one verse, contrasts the law that came through Moses with the grace that came through Christ. And so we must understand what the point of law was. Now, insubordination, if you don't know, means not submitting to authority. Insubordination, in short, means to disobey. It means being disobedient. Somebody that you should listen to tells you to do something, and you don't do it. That's what insubordination is, right? So you can say that your children are insubordinate because they don't listen to you, all right? But in the best description ever of insubordination, it is us who have not submitted ourselves to our Father in heaven who loves us, who made us, who cares for us, who is so fatherly to us, who is so good to us, who knows us better than anybody knows us, who loves us in such a way that he sent his son. He had a plan, a brilliant plan, a masterful plan for him, to, his son, to take on flesh and to become like us. That is our father. And yet, we disobey him. We are insubordinate. We've already seen this in the prologue, but let's point it out a few more times. The mention of light and Christ being the light in verse 5 is because we know darkness. And often uh, uh, rebellion and sinfulness is described as darkness. We know that the light shines and the darkness cannot overpower the light. In verse 10, we see some more insubordination, right? We see that Jesus came into the world. He made the world. The world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. The very one who made the world, loves the world, cares for the world, teaches the world, is going to die for the world, the world did not know him. Take it a step further in verse 11. His own people, right? The Jews, the people of Israel, they did not know him. They did not receive him, the Bible says. And so we see this rejection, this disobedience, this lack of submission to authority all over the place. And this is what we've got here. If you look at verse 17, with the contrast of the law was given through Moses. Now, verse 17 says, the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. There's a contrast there. We are to see that the grace and truth that comes through Jesus Christ is so much better than the law, right? But that does not mean that the law is not a good thing and that the law is not of God and that the law is not even holy and good and true and just, because it is. But we must understand it rightly. If you've not been in Bible study before, or perhaps you've been in Bible studies where you didn't really pay attention, right? Or you just came to Bible study so you could hurry up and leave and go to lunch together, then you may have missed this huge teaching point that is so critical to the message of God. The purpose of God's law is not first and foremost to show you how to live. That's what many people say. That's what you probably taught your kids wrongly. That's not the most important thing. The purpose of God's holy law is to show us how holy and good he is and therefore show us that we are not that holy and good. To read God's holy law would never or should never cause somebody like us to say, well, that's me. That's how I live. That's a description of me. That's how I live. That's how I try to be. No. 
To see God's holy law accurately is to see God as too good and to see us as not good enough. Listen to these words here. Moses was employed as a servant to convey Israel the moral and ceremonial law. As a servant, he was faithful to him who appointed him, but he was only a servant. The moral law which he brought down from Mount Sinai, listen, was holy and just and good, but it could not save. It could not justify people. It taught you what is the right way to go, but it could not cause you to go the right way. It had no healing power. It could wound, but it could not bind up. It worked wrath, not forgiveness. It pronounced a curse against any imperfect obedience. The ceremonial law, which he was commanded to impose on Israel, was full of deep meaning and typical instruction. Its ordinances and ceremonies made it an excellent, listen, schoolmaster or tutor, you might have heard, to guide men toward Christ. But as the ceremonial law was only a schoolmaster, it could not make him that kept it perfect as pertaining to conscience. It had laid a grievous yoke on men's hearts which they were not able to bear. That is the good, true, faithful teaching and meaning of God's holy law. Let me be crystal clear. Today's Father's Day. Fathers, if we are teaching our children only to obey, then we are going to sell them short. If we are teaching our children only to obey, we are going to sell them short. And let me go ahead and tell you, your children probably already are or they will be frustrated. Yes, we teach our kids to obey. We teach our kids to obey. Leaders do the right thing is what I tell my kids every time I drop them off at school. Leaders do the right thing. Leaders do the right thing. Leaders do the right thing. Obedience is huge. But bound up in my heart and your heart and our children's heart is the inability to obey completely. Our children will disobey just as you've disobeyed. They don't disobey because you've taught them so poorly. They don't disobey because you're such bad fathers and mothers. They don't disobey because you failed. No, no, no. They disobey because they love to disobey because they are sinners who have disobeyed their maker. Everybody disobeys. Everybody does. And so, yes, we teach them to obey, but the bigger and better message will set you free with grace and truth. It is that when you disobey, if you turn back to the heart of the Father, he will forgive you of your sins because he sent his son Jesus to die for you. Your insubordination can be overcome and forgiven by the obedience of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is what we are to teach our kids. If they disobey, they are loved. If they disobey, they are forgiven when they turn and trust in Christ. That is God's message. And it is not obedience only. The law in being strong and hard, and, and you've read the Old Testament, and you think, wow, why is it so harsh at times? Because it wants us to see that God is right always, true always, serious, holy, just. He is so good. He is so much better than us. And then we see ourselves as having fallen short of the glory of God and yet understanding his message like he just told Moses in Exodus 33. Remember that? He said, you can't see my glory. He said, I'll show you from the backside. And then what did he say? Kind and gracious and loving, right? That's how he described himself. So it's not only wrath. It's just that God's law can't save you. You've got to come to know his 
heart. You've got to come to know his kindness and his grace. And so this is why we talk about the insubordination. And there's so much to be said about this. Let me read more. By Moses was given the law, the moral law, full of high and holy demands and of stern threatenings against disobedience. The ceremonial law, full of burdensome sacrifices, ordinances, and ceremonies, which never healed the worshiper's conscience. And at best, were only shadows of good things to come. That's the law. It's not going to save anybody. But on the other hand, Christ came with grace and truth. Grace by the full manifestation of God's plan of salvation and the offer of complete pardon to every soul that believes on Jesus. And truth by the unveiled exhibition of Christ himself as the true sacrifice, the true priest, and the true atonement for sin. Augustine said it like this. The law threatened, it didn't help. It commanded, it didn't heal. It showed, not took away our feebleness. But the law made ready for the physician who was to come with grace and truth. Jesus. You know, I try to be one of those strict dads. I don't know if I am. I'm super nervous and conscious about being a pastor and having preacher's kids because we know that that can go wrong. And I've said it before, but that time period when you get home from work, that like 5, 5.30 is the most battle time ever in a family. That's when you're tired and frustrated. Your mind needs to shift away from work and stress and pressure and all that you're dealing with. And it needs to shift over now to being a family man and let's get dinner together and let's go swimming and play ball and go for a walk and ride bikes and help me with my homework and do all these things times five, right? That all happens right there at five and 5.30. And it's serious. And there have been times where they're literally waiting at the door ready to pound on me, like, let's go do all of this. Remember, you told me you were going to take me to get some Skittles. And I come in, and they've not done anything wrong. But I start just going off. Why is that laying there? Why is that? I bet you had not run today. You haven't done anything. You haven't read. You've just been sitting around all day long. And I'll just start throwing out all these haymakers of insults, shame, burden, And that ain't it. That ain't it, guys. So I can remember one time real clearly several months ago where after I just totally crushed the mood, right? What's better than kids waiting for dad to get home so they can play, right? Seriously, what's better than that? And I just destroyed it, pushed them all away. They'll just go run off and hide somewhere. So I said, let's everybody go meet in a room. And I just had to say, I love you guys. And that right there, that ain't it. I'm sorry. I was wrong. That ain't how you do it. Will y'all forgive me? And I had to look at them. I had to look at each one of them and I said, will you forgive me? I love you. I, I want to come home and y'all be ready for me to come home. I want to come home and, you, and be ready to do things with you all. I'm sorry Will you forgive me? See, that is what God is doing. That, that kind, gracious forgiveness is what God is doing in Christ. The law which came through Moses was not going to do that. 
If you look back to verse 17, you have this great distinction here. The law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So it's not, listen, it's not at all that the law was no good. The law is needed. It is accurate. It is true. But it shows us our need, our desperation. And from there we go, where's help? Where's hope? Where's love? What do I do? And the answer isn't do anything. The answer is God has done it for you. The incarnation goes into the insubordination so that lastly we can see the invitation from the Father. Look back with me at verse 14. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. Y'all, all that is there in verse 15 is a nod to Jesus being the incarnate word, him being God. See, John had not said that yet. The apostle John is the one who tells us that John the Baptist said that. And Matt McBroom did a great job preaching on John the Baptist two Sundays ago. But what's happening, you hear about that later in chapter 1. And John just throws it in here in this introduction to let us know. And all that's saying is that John the Baptist came before Jesus in time. If you go back and check their dates, if you go back and read the timeline, John the Baptist came first. But one of the John the Baptist messages was, he who came, uh, before, uh, came after me ranks before me because Jesus is God. He is eternal. And that's all that's saying. Verse 16, for from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. I want you to think about the amount of grace that we know in Christ. I want you to think about how many believers there are in the world today. I want you to think about how many fathers have been absolutely changed and gripped by the love of the true father. I want you to think about how many people have been saved and become followers of Christ. How many people have been forgiven of their sins. How many people are in church this morning. Think about worldwide how many believers there are. And you know where every single one of them came from? The overflowing fountain of grace that is in Jesus Christ. Christ. That's what he's meaning in verse 16. Verse 17, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Verse 18, right? The invitation to the Father. No one has ever seen God. That's true. He's a spirit. No one's seen the Father. He doesn't let people see him, right? Not until we get to heaven will anybody ever see the Father. It's true. Verse 18, no one's ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. John's prologue is outstanding, rich, and deep. Jesus Christ coming into the world was God showing us what God is like. The Father showing us what the Father's like without us actually seeing the Father because the Son and the Father are one and the same, yet they're different, right? That's the whole beauty of the Trinity and the Godhead, and that's what's happening. And this is such a loaded statement, he has made him known. There's a big term that we use in Bible study called exegesis. I don't know if you've ever heard of that before. It's a good word. You need to know it, though, right? Exegesis. That's the very word here. Exegesis says, this means something. I need to dig into what it means and bring out and tell you what it means. That, that's what exegesis is, all right? This Bible means something because God who wrote it had something for it to say. So in studying it, we go into it. We say, what does this mean? And then I tell you all what it means. That's exegesis. The opposite of that is eisegesis. That is I'm Josh Green, and I got something I want to share here today. Got to get it off my heart. I'm going to get on my soapbox, and I'm going to find a Bible verse going to tell you what it means, all right? That's eisegesis. That's bad. 
That's not God speaking. That's me speaking and using God. That's bad. That is really bad. We use exegesis and eisegesis when we're talking about studying and preaching. You know what the very word is here? Exegesis. Jesus exegeted God. Jesus explained God. If you want to know what God is like, if your family members want to know what God is like, if your children want to know what God is like, you know where they need to go? Christ. They need to get law, and they need to get grace and truth. They need to see and understand Jesus. My little girl, Carolina, recently got a new card game. It's called Sushi Go. I don't know if you've ever played that card game before, Sushi Go. It's awesome. You got to check it out. But it looks like a little kitty seven-year-old girl game, and so I didn't want anything to do with it. I watched her play. I saw other people playing. Her and her, her brothers and sisters were having a good time playing this game, Sushi Go, but it's It's called Sushi Go, and it looks like a joke and all that. And so I never had anything to do with it, right? And they kept asking me to play and asking me to play. But I didn't know what it was. And finally, just two days ago, I said, all right, I'll play. I started thinking it's Father's Day weekend. I better try to be a good father. (laughs) I said, all right, I'll play. They started teaching it to me, explaining it to me, reading the rule book to me. Y'all, I love this game. This game is so good. It is so much fun. It sounds like it's for kids, but it is totally good for adults. If you've never seen Sushi Go, go get it. It is so much fun. But the difference was, listen to me, the difference was I didn't know what it was like. I didn't know what it was. I had never had it explained to me. But once it did, that changed everything. Folks, if you're thinking about the Father, if you're thinking about the Father, apart from the coming of Jesus Christ to love and serve and die in your place, you don't yet know the heart of the Father. There is an invitation in the scriptures. There's an invitation in the world. There's an invitation in our church for you to be loved by God, for you to walk into his grace and be forgiven of your sins, for you to know what he's really like, for you to know that he's not standing over you with law only. He's standing there with a law that shows you how good he is and how wrong you are, but he doesn't do that to drive you away. He does that to draw you in so that you'll say, you mean even though I'm that sinful, you still love me? And he says, yes, I do. Look at my son. That's why I sent him. As the band comes up, they're going to lead us in this song that's an oldie but goodie called Blessed Assurance. And Blessed Assurance is just speaking about us sitting in God's love. Listen to these lyrics. Blessed Assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. Heir of salvation, purchase of God, born of his spirit, washed in his blood. Young, come on up. Perfect submission, perfect delight. Visions of rapture now burst on my sight. Angels descending bring from above. Listen to this. Echoes of mercy, whispers of love. Just imagine rest, resting in that. Perfect submission, all is at rest. I and my Savior am happy and blessed. Watching and waiting, looking above. Listen. Filled with his goodness. Lost in his love. That is the heart of the Father, filled with his goodness and lost in his love is what the Father wants us to know, and you know how you know it, by turning to Christ.
who he sent. May you repent, may you be forgiven, and may you believe. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you this Father's Day that we can see how loving you are. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for sending your son, Father. God, we hear the invitation and we believe. Lord, lead us now to respond to you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.